Hello, I'm Paul Scott, and today I'm talking to Mike Raybould, the CEO of Port Merion Group. So, hello, Mike. Hello, Paul. Great to speak to you. Likewise. Thanks for making the time. Um, quick disclaimers. I do personally hold some Port Merion shares. I'm not charging a fee, and I'm not giving advice or recommendations, so please do your own research. So, uh, we last spoke, Mike, in, I think it was October 2020, during the pandemic, and so much has changed since then, and you've steered Port Merion through COVID, supply chain, uh, chaos, inflation, an energy crisis, um, which must have been a pretty tall order. It has been, you know, as you say, the world has been a tough place to do business for everybody the last three years. It's also given us as a group, an opportunity to really change the business. Uh, and with the brands that we've got, I think we're a much stronger place today. And, uh, you know, that's really, really positive. Yeah, because I look back at the... Um I look back at the historical uh, uh, performance of the company on Stockopedia, um, and I noticed that your profits now are pretty much back to where they were when the share price peaked at £12.50. Um, so, but the share price is about a, a third of where it was then, which seems an anomaly. So, so the 2022 results have just come out, and profit was up 7% to £8 million. Um, so do you want to uh, talk us through the key points um, from the 22 results and the outlook? Very happy to do that, Paul. So, yeah, sales were up five, and, and actually profit, or PBT, was up 11. And so operating margins were up sort of about 60 basis points. And that's good because we actually have a long-term, well, medium and long-term strategy to really take operating margins up first to 10, then up to 12.5, which actually was where the group was in terms of operating margins, sort of in the 2015 to 2018 kind of part of history. Um, so we were pleased to record another year of growth, especially against a tough comp, because in 2021, we actually reported a, a kind of record sales year. And I think we benefited from, from two things in particular. The work that we've done in the last couple of years to expand our, our sales geography, we're more diversified. 75% of sales now are outside of our UK home market, and particularly we're, we're exposed in the US, which is the biggest market. The other thing we benefited from was the work we've done to, to really increase our exposure in online channels, whether that be our own websites or particularly retailer.com on the channel platforms. And so both those pieces of work helped to mitigate you know, the t slightly soft, softer economics uh, around the world. Mm. Yeah, let's focus on the operating margin then. So 7.8% um, uh, currently in the 2022 results. Then you're stepping it up from 10% to 12.5%, you hope to. I mean, that sounds a good aspiration, but a tall order maybe to actually do it rather than say it, if I'm being uh, a bit challenging there. So, so what, what do you, how do you see yourself getting to that target margin? What are you actually going to do to achieve it? Well, we've identified internally three drivers and areas of focus that if we deliver on will really take that operating margin up. And by the way, the 10% is a medium-term target. By medium-term, I mean operating margins will go up this year in 23, but 10% will be in 24, and then 12.5% is a sort of a five-year horizon. Mm. The, three, the three key drivers are as follows. Firstly, 
the work that we're doing, investing in automation in our main factory in the UK, our Stoke Tableware factory. So we're a little over halfway through kind of a four-year program of investing, reducing manual handling, improving the productivity, the output per every man hour. And, and so that's going to be worth uh, you know, a chunk of that operating margin appreciation. The second thing that will help us is, is we're clearly expecting to grow our top line as well. As we grow the top line from this point, then we can utilize the spare capacities we have in our UK factories. We can leverage the existing fixed cost of fixed base that we have, the sales infrastructure and costs and warehouses that we have around the world. And again, that will be really uh, appreciative for, for operating margins. And then the third and final part of the story is that we have one part of our business that represents about 10 to 12% of sales, which is a home fragrance division. The company's called, or the brand is called Wax Lyrical. And that part of the business has been most impacted or worst impacted by the COVID and cost of living pressures. It's a home fragrance product that hasn't really, as a category, moved online in the same way that the rest of our business has. It tends to be an impulse purchase or a gift or self-gift. And so its customers were were most impacted by COVID. So we made a small loss in that division actually within 2022. It was an improved position from, from you know, the worst of, of COVID, but still a small loss. And so we're expecting to better return that to profitability and a more reasonable operating margin over the next two or three years. And so that is a third driver, if you like, of, of getting those operating margins for the group up. Yeah, thanks for that. Those are all pretty firm, tangible things we can latch on to, aren't they? So just um, just a follow-on question on the automation, just so we can kind of visualize it, having having not actually seen a pottery factory before. What Could you describe the typical machines that you're actually buying? What do they do and, you know, what do they look like and so on? Sure. So there's been a factory where we are, where I'm sitting at you right now, for around about 100 years. And obviously it's evolved over time, but making ceramics, certainly in our factory, is still a very labor-intensive process. That's good in many ways and that we have a significant amount of experience and crafts and uh, people that have worked here for many, many years and that, that their skills and their knowledge is, is and always will be very important. But, you know, we've identified that there are many processes, mandel handling stuff that was very labor-intensive. So, I can give you some you know, examples of automation that's already gone in and, and then it's going to go in in the next year or so. So when we uh, – th and there's different parts of a factory that makes tableware. So you tend to make uh, the shape of the product out of what we call a, a biscuit product first. And then you will glaze it and then you will decorate it. And at each stage, uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of work that goes on, a lot of handling that goes on. So what we're doing is we're using – a company, an automation company that had actually never worked in our industry before, brought fresh ideas and they did a lot of stuff in the food industry. So we worked with them and said, look, you know, come and spend a month in our factory and look at how we can take some of the automation that you might have in a food factory, for example, and utilize that to actually move the cups and the plates and the bowls around, placing them on machines. We have also worked on how we can improve how we decorate the products 
through automation and robots. And we have a scheme going in the next quarter, actually, that will replicate what we do very manually at the moment, where we take a biscuit bowl, cup, mug, plate, and dip it in glaze in order to give the, the, the kind of color and glaze. And we're going to do that using robotics as well. So those are just some of the hmm. examples. But so it's about replacing quite manual tasks with, with robotics, um, maintaining the same quality um, and, and oversight still in terms of people and skills, but being able to, again, just take up manual handling and manual processes. Yeah, interesting. And what's the sort of total capex uh, cost of that for the Sogum on Trent factory then? So uh, by the end of this year, we would have spent around five million, and then after that, we'll probably have another couple of million to go. Good news is that typically these projects have had around about a three-year payback, which is pretty good for mm. for a factory capital investment. And so we expect <coughs> that you know this program, and we're already getting some of the benefits, but this program will not only increase the capacity that we can make in any shift, but also reduce the kind of the, like the labour cost per hour. Uh, uh, the output we can get for, for every hour of, of labor that we have. And so we get extra capacity but we also, and throughput, but we also get a lower cost per, per piece. Yeah, sounds good. And do the, do the savings and the efficiencies in practice that you've actually seen happen, do they match what was budgeted or were the budgets too ambitious or no, the way around? No, so, so, so far. I mean, clearly in 2022, there were some things that, works against us the other way, particularly in terms of pressure, in terms of labor rates. Uh, and, you know, we are, you know, very happy to continue to pay our people the market rate, but market rates, uh, whether it be living wage, all that sort of stuff, has gone up a lot more than normal. So, you know, labor rate inflation has offset some of the productivity gains, but that, those labor rate inflation would have happened anyway. So I think that the productivity yeah. gains are coming through as we expected and, and should continue to come through. Um, yeah. And, and how about um, passing the costs on to the customers? Have you, have you got much pricing power with these products? We do. Again, it depends a little on the brand and the market, but we have put price rises through. Uh, typically, when you put a price rise through, you get a part-year benefit in the first year because you'll have a, an order book uh, or order in 10 that's at an old price that takes time to feed through. But we put price rises through last year, so we got a part-year benefit last year, and we'll get a further pickup this year. And then we'll be putting through new price rises. There are There is always a balance, you know, and we are careful, I think, to get the balance right between passing through a price rise, understanding what our competitors are doing in terms yeah. of price rise, and, you know, also wanting to make sure we get that balance right in terms of, you know, here's a great product, but keeping it affordable and an affordable price point. Yeah, yeah, that all makes sense. So moving on to the next theme then, online sales. I was quite surprised when you said in your very detailed commentary, incidentally, I know a lot of work goes into producing these uh, uh, results statements, and it was, it was a very interesting read. Um, I think the biggest two markets, U.S. and U.K., you're saying that uh, about half, I think it's 51%, wasn't it, of the sales are online, either your own website or third-party websites. Um, 
can we can we can you talk around online a bit and how much more growth you can see there? Are the sales profitable online? As I know a lot of e-commerce businesses, it turns out now, don't really make any money at all. And do you have a returns or breakages and online marketing? So to, to, I'll I'll, let, I'll set you off to just talk on that on that sure. theme. <clears throat> so you're absolutely right. A key part of our growth over the last three years has been getting our product more exposed to more customers via online channels. And I think actually immediately before COVID, so 2019, we probably had approaching 30% of our sales in those two big markets, which, by the way, account for about 65% of the group sales. We had about uh, approaching 30% going through an online platform of some sort, whether it be our own website or a retailer website or whatever. Uh, and we're now up at 51%. So we've made substantial sort of uh, improvements in terms of penetration in those channels. And, you know, the benefit of having brands in certain markets that are well-known or well-established to get it in front of more people or on more occasions than, than you understand, you know, what it does to, to, to ourselves. And obviously that we've had to invest in that. We've invested in, in our own websites, new websites, improved websites, in the digital assets, the digital marketing tools, whether it be product photography, lifestyle photography, the products in people's homes, video content, you have to invest in all that. But even even after all those on costs, it's still a very profitable route for us. If we sell off our own website, we would be typically making you know 15% better margin, even after the additional cost of shipping and picking and packing. And we have the only advantage of having that relationship with the end consumer. And we can talk to them again in the future. As well as our own websites, though, we've grown substantially on retailer.com websites. And that might be John Lewis's uh, website or Macy's or Bloomingdale's in the US, the equivalent. Or it might be the Pure Play platforms. And so that has also been part of the story. So, again, being able to supply them with the digital assets uh, and getting in front of more potential customers. In terms of where we go, Paul, from here, you know, I'm not sure that 51% is necessarily going to shoot up as a percentage, but the actual absolute value, the pound and dollar value, I think, should continue to grow. Um, and, you know, we're actively looking at in some of our other markets now, how do we make sure, or how can we get that exposure on online platforms in South Korea, for example, which is our third biggest market in other markets. How do we get the same online exposure, and how do we continue to build our own websites, um, our own customer databases where, where we can? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I was originally skeptical about buying uh, crockery online, um, So, but I love the botanic garden design. I think it's just beautiful. So I, I, I bought some online, partly as well, to test out the process and the customer experience with a view to buying some shares. And I have to say it works really well. It all, you know, it's packed uh, cleverly, so it, no, nothing broke in transit. Um, and and people collect, a lot of your sales are actually not necessarily recurring or not contractually recurring, but repeating sales, aren't they? Which I don't think a lot of investors have latched onto. That want, it's like I've, I've probably reordered, you know, additional items in the Botanic Garden range three or four times. And... Um, You've got the Christmas tree range as well, haven't you? So do you want to yeah, talk a bit about the repeating nature of sales? Yeah, I will do. Just before I go on to that, I'll just pick up mm. 
I think in your previous question, you asked actually about returns on our online stuff. Oh, yeah. So actually, we're, we're very fortunate in our category that returns are very negligible. There would be you know, sub-half of a percent returns and branches. Wow. So That's very amazing. different to maybe the, the fashion industry where people are trying things on. Yeah. Uh, and so that, that contributes to, to the online channel being a, a very profitable channel for us. In terms of repeating sales, you, you're right. I mean, the, the six main brands that we have, and I should, maybe should have said this at the outset, and then we're, we're caught Port Marion Group from a, from a stock exchange listing point of view, but actually there are six core brands, including Spode, Royal Worcester, Port Merriam, Kimpanel, which is placemats, uh, Wax Lyrical, which is home frames, and Nambay, which is a premium uh, homewares, surfware, barware, and kitchenware mm-hmm. brand in the U.S. So each of our brands does different things in the market, and as I think you started to, to get into, we, we have a number of ranges that have been around a long time have huge longevity and well-known respect in the market. And so absolutely, when people have invested in those ranges, typically they will buy again or they will add to the collection. And two examples of that would be the range that you mentioned, Port Marion Botanic Garden. And the other one would be Spode Christmas Tree, which is huge in the U.S. And those two ranges, just those two ranges, the first is 50 years old, the second is around 90 years old. Those two ranges account for around about 40% of the group's total revenue every year and have a very reliable repeat sales and kind of underpin to, to, the, to the group's numbers, just two ranges delivering that. And that's kind of something quite unique about, I guess, the surrounding table industry is that you have to, quite, have to work quite hard sometimes to get a winner. But if you get a winner... It can last forever. It can, you know, 50 years and 90 years kind of yeah. bears that out. And so with, with Botanic Garden and, and I suppose Christmas Tree, our job really is to keep them uh, fresh and relevant and to give people that have already bought in something every year to add to the range. So we will bring out new products within those ranges. It just brings a little bit of newness to the repeat, uh, to the repeat purchaser. Yeah, definitely. It's nice to see new products in the set because, you know, like with me, I absolutely love the botanic garden design. I think it's beautiful. So when you see other products uh, in in that same design, you're drawn to them. So, uh, yeah. Okay, thinking then, uh, just going off the tangent, on a personal level, you were the CFO for for a while and then you uh, stepped up to become the CEO, I think, in 2019. So how have you found that? Has it involved different skill sets or challenges? Yeah, I, I mean, I think firstly, it's been great. I've loved every minute. It has been a difficult two or three years in terms of what's been going on in the world, but actually, sometimes that works in your favour. You know, the way I look at it is, is in a time of kind of world upheaval, you know, you have the opportunity to, to do things with your business, get things done, move move faster, but that perhaps would be hard to do it in a more in a more normal environment because of the necessity. But in terms of that switch, you know, I worked as CFO for a couple of years and have been a CFO in other businesses, um, consumer goods and FMCG. And I think I've been fortunate in that all the roles I've done as CFO had always been very commercial and operational roles as well, as pure finance, which helps with the transition. But I think, you know, as a CEO, your job is different. You need know, to set the vision and ambition. 
you need to make sure you have the right resource and people around you to deliver on that and you need to keep everybody going and then you'll be able to make changes to the trajectory of what you're doing if it doesn't work out as you expect it and that really in a nutshell is what I, I try and do I set an ambition which was that I wanted to get our well-known and well-established brands in front of more customers we mm-hmm. talked about online as a way of doing that and that's been successful so far and the other way of doing it is, is well, we're working on it through geographies, expanding your, your sales markets and your geographies, and you know, we're, we're starting to make progress on that as well. So you set the ambition out. As we've gone through COVID, uh, you know, I've also said, well, look, you know, we need to get more, we need to get more efficient in our supply chains and our factories. We need to future-proof our factories. I think the manufacturing in the UK, we make kind of 40 to 50 percent of the products we sell in our own UK factories. I think making the UK is a great thing. And something we should value, um, and so it's been uh, it's been fantastic to be able to see investments, the investments that I've talked about going into our factories that, that hopefully will future proof the, the, the jobs and, and the UK kind of made in the UK um, stamp for, for a long, long time. So yeah, it's been it's been enjoyable. You constantly need to look at what's next. So, you know, I've just done a road show for four or five days, as you said at the beginning, talking to investment, potential investors, and that's good. And I'm talking about last year, but you need to immediately then come back in and, and say, right, let's make sure we're moving the whole business on this year from a sales point of view and all the other parts of our, of our strategy. So the great thing I think about being a CEO, certainly in this organization, is you, you never get a dull day. Every day, every day is either a challenge or an opportunity, and that makes it makes it very enjoyable. Yeah, good stuff. And then just briefly touching on divvies, uh, as a small shareholder myself, I like dividends, and the forecast yields for Port Mayor is about 5%, so a pretty mid, upper-middle-ranking dividend yield share, and, it, and it's well-covered as well uh, because you're on such a low PE ratio. So how do you balance up? shareholder returns and capex and uh, other requirements to invest in the business sure well certainly during the last three years uh, our priority is firstly to be to make sure we we navigate the external the stuff that's going on the external world code and everything else and you know we have responsibility to shareholders we have responsibilities of the nearly 900 employees and the communities that those people are in and then on top of that, I wanted to make sure we had enough cash to do some accelerated investments, particularly in our factories and in our websites, in the way that's just described. But once that's done, then I think it is important to be able to return via a dividend to shareholders. So we have a good level of cover. We're at about three, three, three times cover. Um, we took a pause for nine or 12 months in that very first year of COVID, but we very quickly were able to prove that, you know, the business wasn't going anywhere and, um, you know, we, we were getting back or close to being back to, to historic levels of profitability. So good to better returns of paying a dividend. Expect that to continue. And I think we can we can get that balance between investing enough in the business so that we have the ability to hopefully make capital growth, uh, mm-hmm. but also paying out a good dividend uh, along the way on the journey. Yeah, great. And and really more of a comment than a question. Well, no, I'll ask you what you feel about it as well. 
given the, the forward PE of 6.8 and the healthy balance sheet and so on, I'd love you to do aggressive share buybacks. I think that could create tremendous value for shareholders. I mean, is that something you've considered? Um, it's not something we consider at this point, but it is a point that's been made to me a few times in, mm. the, last, in the last week uh, when I've been in the city or whatever or on calls. And I think it's an interesting idea. Um, yeah. We... You know, I, I think yeah, I think it's a it's a it's a, it's an interesting idea. Obviously, unfortunately, we don't set our share price. I wish we did. We feel that we're undervalued, and you know, we have a job to do as a management team. I think to, to, to demonstrate the value of the brands and the business, and hopefully the, the future sales and profit stream that we have, and we're you know working hard to try and get that story out there. Yeah, good. Now, I think sooner or later the market recognises value, doesn't it? But you can have mispricing. I totally agree. I think this is just to me. I, given your financial performance, I cannot see why this share isn't trading at sort of between five and six pounds a share. That to me would just be a PE of about ten or twelve. Yeah, which and that's where it's not expensive. Well, a week before yeah. the Ukraine war, that's, that's yeah. where it was. And so, you know, the, the defining event, certainly for the stocks and aim, was was what happened. Mm. when the Ukraine war kicked off, as, as you say, hopefully things will settle down in terms of valuations and then the, the true value will become become apparent from what we're doing. Yeah, just a question of being patient, isn't it? Um, I know um, a lot of investors, I think, are worried about the general macro picture at the moment. And, of course, this latest banking crisis hasn't helped. So uh, that's another factor, I think, isn't it? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, just... what, what I would say on that is that you know, it's not my job to, to make explicit forecasts. We have analysts that mm. do that. But, but, but actually, my, my instinct, as I've been around some of our key markets this year, I've spent some time in the U.S. and South Korea, uh, met with international customers, Asian customers in, 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 in Frankfurt, a big trade show called Ambiance. You know what? Generally, the feedback that we're getting is that these, these customers, retailers, generally, they're, they're cautiously optimistic about this year. They're certainly open to looking at new products and, and new lines. And so, I, you know, I, I sense that things are not maybe as bad as the press um, and all the stuff that's out there would you know, like us to believe. But, you know, hopefully, mm. hopefully that will continue through the year. Good. No, I, I was going to say the, the general tone of your commentary with the 2022 results, I thought, was, was nicely upbeat. I was, I just, that reminds me, there was just one item in the Outlook statement that I wanted to query with you because it, it seemed uh, contradictory. It's the, the middle bullet point out of three. Uh, sorry for dropping this on you without prior warning, but um, it says here, seeing an encouraging customer outlook, although remain cautious due to the ongoing macroeconomic uncertainty. Doesn't that contradict, contradict itself? When you read it back, it does. It does sound a little bit contradictory. <laughs> I think, Good answer, thank you. I think. I think that. I think the problem with writing these statements is you write them, you know, on a day, and you think how uneven the world has been in terms of events. You know, there's a, there's a great chance you get look, made to look very foolish. <laughs> you know, a few weeks or a few months later, when something happens that's outside of your control, and I think generally yeah. when I read reports, you know, whether it be. FTSE 100, Next, PLC, or, or smaller companies like us, people generally are saying, actually, we're trading reasonably well, but we are cautious because 
it's been a volatile world. There's still a lot of things going on in the outside world, right? So I think that's what I was trying to get over. That from what we can see, you know, we've got some healthy order books around the world. Trading very early part of the year is, is in line with our forecasts or what we're expecting. However, we still remain watchful of what's going on uh, around the world. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. So on the balance sheet, I had a, a good rummage through your accounts in detail over the last couple of days. Now, the obvious standout item, which you have commented on in the commentary, is the, the very high inventories. So can you talk us through uh, why you bought so much more inventories and why you think they'll fall back in 2023 to the old levels? Sure, and it's a, good, it's a very good point, and it does stand out. So our inventory went up around about, 10 million year on year, and there were three components of that. The first was foreign exchange conversion. And what I mean by that is if we were <coughs> buying stocks uh, or buying from a factory uh, and paying US dollars, which we do, then when the, the pound weakened in the second half of last year, the same volume of stock just it represents a bigger pound, a pound value on our balance sheet. Hmm. So that's a, and that's roughly a third of the increase, actually about four of the ten million. The second component is uh, freight and cost price increases. So actually, the cost of the the finished good product of the stock has just got more expensive, either because of input cost inflation, raw materials and labour, or and particularly because of the global container freight rates. Just as an aside on that, to give some uh, some idea of what that means, then we would we would move around 640 foot containers around the world a year. Which, uh, typically, you know, 18 months ago, you'd pay three three and a half thousand dollars for a 40 foot container to go from Asia to the US, for example. They went all the way up to 20,000 at their peak, and so that extra cost. Uh, global container freight of getting the stock in the market effectively sits in our stock balance for now. The good news is that container freight rates as fast as they went up have now started coming down again. And on most routes around the world now are, are at or approaching the low levels they were at before. So I was going to say they crashed, crashed now, yeah. haven't they? I think I think UPGS said they were down to $1,300. Yeah, well, that would be amazing if we could get a 1300 But, you know, even at 3000 Mm. You're, still, you're still back and making a significant savings. So part one is, is FX. Part two is global freight and cost price. Part three is a like-to-like volume increase, and that's roughly a third of 10 million. So what we have said and what we have kind of advised in terms of analysts and what we're committed to it certainly is during the course of this year, that volume increase, that should certainly unwind. And I'll, I'll talk about why we have the volume increase in a minute. The volume increase should unwind, and the freight increase should unwind. So if you like, those two components of the increase through the course of this year should go back to historic levels. And so you know, roughly six of the ten should drop out by the next balance sheet date. Mm. And the freight, numbers are, the freight numbers are a big number. I've just been putting it into my... Calculator, you know that's that high single-digit millions of pounds, isn't it? Potentially, the, 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 it, the it is. But unfortunately, it has to work through. So it's in stock, you know. And typically, you have two stock sales a year. So it takes six months to to move stock through, which has the higher container freight rates. And 
and then B, building up stock with the lower contained rates, and, and I know you, you'll understand that as a... Mm. Um, but in terms of why the volume bit went up, so the third of the increase that was volume, why was that? Well, really being honest, we, 18 months ago, we were struggling with getting the right amount of stock on time into our markets. There was huge disruption to freight. You had those queues of container boats outside the ports in Los Angeles and New Jersey and the US, Southampton, whatever. And I think we reacted to that, like a lot of people, by saying, you know what, we just need to go deeper on stock. We were having, a, you know, good sales momentum. Um, but unfortunately, we've been left with more than we wanted. So mm-hmm. it's kind of, we made decisions at the time. Would you make them again, knowing what we know now? No, but it, it is what it is. The only positive about that volume uplift is that it's all good new ongoing lines, which will sell through week in, week out this year, which is why we're confident that over the 12 months 2023 that that volume uplift will, will unwind and we'll go back to historic levels. Yeah, that's good news. That, that would wipe out the net debt, of course, wouldn't it, which would make the balance sheet, because it's a similar number, the stock increase to your total net debt. Yeah, um, yeah. So, no, that all sounds good. And there's definitely no, there's not a sort of backed up warehouse full of dead stock within that inventories line, is there? Well, again, we're in a, we're, we sell in a category where product doesn't go out of fashion. Mm. I gave a couple of examples earlier, kind of 50-year-old yeah. and 90-year-old stuff. But actually, the contemporary lines that we have, Port Mary and Sophie Conrad, a beautiful kind of white tableware range, these sell week in, week out. And where we've got the extra stock, it tends to be in these, um, in these contemporary lines that we don't make in our UK factories. And so we're confident that it will, it'll all sell. Good. Encouraging. Um, I don't think we've got time for all the rest of these questions, but jumping to probably the most important one, energy. Um, now, <clears throat> I know you've said, uh, was you, you hedged through to Q1 of 2024, I believe. Um, could you give us a rough idea? And I think it can, people can work it out from the annual report where it shows your energy usage. But could, could you give us a rough idea of how X number of millions that you saved from being hedged compared with not being hedged? And what will happen when the hedges expire, do you think? Yeah, so we were long-term hedged out to end of March 2024, so we've got roughly a year still at kind of pre-Ukraine war prices. Um, I think if we had to buy it, if we had to buy now, I mean, you can't really get a long-term contract at the moment. We can come on to that in sure. but it would probably cost us about 1.5% of operating margins. Let's call it 1.5 million pounds roughly double. Um, uh, so what are we doing between now and when our, our long-term contracts finish? Well, A, we're looking at how can we take energy usage out, good, good for the P&L, but also good from a, from a carbon emissions point of view, ESG point of view. And secondly, at what point is it worth taking out new contracts? Mm-hmm. The spot rates for energy actually tomorrow, you know, for tomorrow if you wanted to buy more gas to go in our kilns, the spot rates actually are very low again. But those spot rates currently aren't being uh, aren't available in terms of long-term contracts. And so, you yeah. know, between now and next year, hopefully, those energy markets and the pricing models between the energy producers and then the suppliers and the people that we, you know, we as a company or as or we as consumers would deal with, th- those contracts will settle down. But in all likelihood, 
we will be paying more for energy in 12 months' time than we have been paid, been paying, but it should be more than offset by the reduction in global container freight rates. Yeah, brilliant. Sounds good. And it's no, so we're not looking at vast numbers either way, really, then, are we? You know, certainly nothing that would come in anything close to threatening the, the company's existence. No, no. Great. Um, probably the last question. Let's just touch on acquisitions. Um, have you got any opportunities on the horizon to buy any more brands? And also, could Port Marion itself become an acquisition target, given the uh, lowly valuation and the iconic brands? I mean, look, I mean, our main focus, Paul, today is, is making the best of the opportunities we see with the six main brands that we have. I think there's a lot of potential. We've got brands like Spode and Nombe really growing now at quite a nice pace. Expect that to continue. In these sort of turbulent times, then sometimes there are opportunities that present themselves. And, you know, if, if we saw something, we'd have a look at it. Um, but it would have to it would have to kind of accelerate our strategy, I think, to be worthwhile. Um, but you know, there's not something that, uh, that I see immediately ahead of us that we're, we're looking at in terms of whether we are an acquisition target. Um, I guess all companies um, are potential acquisition targets when the pound is weak and you know valuation or multiples aren't what they were. But you know. Our job is to is to get people to understand the work that we've done with the business, the improvements we've made to the business, the reliability of, of the revenue and the strength of the brands, and keep growing the top line, improve the operating margins, and hopefully share prices and everything else will follow in due course. Yeah. Okay, great. And just one final question. Actually, a couple of my readers on Stockopedia flagged this up this morning. They said uh, they really liked my review of the last accounts, but the only thing they were not keen on was that management shareholdings are very small. Is there, is there any, um, you know, are you looking to build up more, more, more shares for directors personally? Yes, uh, that is something that's been discussed at a board level. I mean, we went through uh, a period a few years ago where some of the long-serving members of the board left who had big short holdings and we've got a very new management team it does take some time however we you know uh, hopefully we'll build up our, our, our shareholdings and, and that's the right thing to do and you know getting the share price up getting a good valuation is 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 very important to the management team good Music to my ears. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I think we've um, covered everything, Mike. Is there, are there any sort of closing points you'd like to make that we haven't uh, already touched on? No, I think we've covered a lot of ground, Paul. It's always a, always a pleasure. Uh, it's good to catch up today. I hope this has been useful. Yeah, we're obviously We're obviously you know, pleased with what we've done in a difficult world and can see a lot of, of opportunity ahead of us. We need to deliver on that, and um, you know that's what we're focused on every day. So I look forward to talking to you again, I'm sure, at some point in the future. Brilliant. That's fantastic. Thanks so much, Mike. I've really enjoyed this, and uh, thanks again for your time. It's been great. Pleasure. Thanks, Paul. Cheers now. Bye. Thank you. Paul Scott. Left the call.